Hi everyone, I'm Megan McChesney and this is episode 3 of The Lip. We've delivered a double banger this month, two quite different stories about two people dealing with the tough things in life in quite unusual ways. Instead of running both together in the same episode, they've been released as separate episodes, both available at the same time. So if you've missed episode 2, which is called The Butterfly Effect, you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, our own website, which is thelippodcast.kiwi, and also on the new current affairs and culture website, noted.co.nz. But right here, right now, you're about to hear episode 3, The Singing Cowboy. Down by the seaside sit and sand Even little children love Miriam Jock Hume, a.k.a. the singing cowboy, is something of an institution in Auckland. These days he mostly busks in the suburbs, but in the 70s and 80s he was a real fixture on Queen Street and Kay Road. Some people get him mixed up with another guy with a guitar. A dude who used to wear a Stetson hat and stand on Queen Street hurting everyone's ears. He couldn't sing and didn't actually know how to play the guitar. He kind of just hacked at the strings. I guess you could call this imposter cowboy a deliberate act of brand confusion. A kind of punk era singing cowboy corporate raider. But Jock, the actual singing cowboy, is the real deal. As the singing cowboy, he's been around so long, there are people who've loved him since they were kids. Now they've got kids of their own, even grandkids. He's something of a Kiwi icon. Jock will turn 70 at the end of this year, and just recently he's been making noises about hanging up his hat and shucking off his Cuban heels for good. It kind of got me curious about how Jock started out in the first place, and it turns out there's more to this cowboy than meets the eye. What most people don't know about Jock is that as a teenager he battled such crippling depression and anxiety he nearly didn't make it. It was touch and go for Jock, he could have given up on life, but instead not only did he carve out a place for himself in the world, he claimed a place in people's hearts and memories. His story is an inspiration. This is Mary, Jock's eldest sister. Our dad, he was a good man in lots of ways, but he was a very dominating personality. He had rather rigid ideas about what um, a boy should be and definitely what a man should be. And if his sons appeared not to be measuring up, you know, he tended to give them a hard time. I think from the time Jock was a teenager, Dad probably was trying to push him to be up to the mark. And the one area in which Jock did do very well was sports. Jock was a very good tennis player. Dad was proud of him for that, but I think that was really the only way in which Dad felt Jock was measuring up. I remember him as being very quiet, too quiet, but um, no trouble. I left home to go flatting, but my mother used to confide in me the difficulties at home, and she said... Like a lot of families, people sit around the table for the evening meal and it should be a happy time when people eat and chat. But Mum indicated that Dad used that as a time to scold Jock. Jock would stop eating 
and a sick look would come over his face because of Dad's interrogations, and he would put his knife and fork down and ask to be excused. And I think that was quite tragic because it would have uh, tied together the business of eating with stress. Be tough, be tough like me. I don't run to doctors when I'm sick and I, I don't take stuff out of bottles. He's one of those sort of people. That's Jock. He was number four of five kids, and by the time he hit his late teens, he needed more than a doctor. He was experiencing severe anxiety and depression. He'd withdrawn into himself and was hardly eating. Everyone knows what a nervous breakdown is. I wasn't coping with my schoolwork. I, I lost a lot of weight, and um, I couldn't. I didn't have my appetite. I wasn't sleeping properly at night. I went down to five stone. Five stone, that's 32 kilos, a normal weight for a 10-year-old boy. Jock was 17. He was so very thin. I saw him at the beach and was worried about how thin he was. And when he was admitted to Ward 10, they put him on special drugs to pack a bit of weight on. But sad to say, I think the most helpful thing was getting away from my father. To be fair, I think Dad bullied all three of my brothers, trying to make them come up to scratch. And um, it had a bad effect on all of them, but particularly on Jock. Ward 10 was the psych ward at Auckland Hospital, where Jock was admitted when his weight became dangerously low. And straight away, Megan, I started coming right. Nice atmosphere, good food. I started putting on all the weight I'd lost. It was just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And of course, when the doctors got mum and dad in to find out, you know, what sort of a home life I had, dad, of course, was raving and ranting on how, what a big tough chap he was, and Jock needed plenty of fresh air and exercise and hard work. And the doctors, of course, were just appalled. You know, they could see where the problem was. Mum, of course, was much better, more sympathetic. Poor mum. My father virtually stormed out of the interview. He, he wouldn't cooperate when the doctors were trying to establish what the difficulties were at home. Anyway, um, we got through that and uh, I spent three months in hospital as an inpatient. All I could think of was just getting well and being happy. After Jock was released from hospital, he finished school and then he tried a succession of jobs, but he struggled to cope. Postman, delivery driver, office worker, factory, oh, you name it. <laughs> Nothing really stuck. One of his last jobs was at the General Merchants, L.D. Nathan. I was the office boy, just delivering the mail and buying the boss's lunch. Mr Nathan, he loved his um, uh, yoghurt. I remember one, one day I, I mucked things up, I got strawberry yoghurt from Mr Nathan instead of vanilla, and just about went as red as strawberry. <laughs> My nervous system survived 10 months at LD Nathan's, the longest job I'd ever had. I'd been transferred into the um, invoicing department and, and it was just too much for me. One day I just couldn't cope and I had to go home, you know, and tell the boss and my whole nervous system had just collapsed. Jock knew he needed to find something he could do that wouldn't throw him into a spin of anxiety and depression, but he was stumped by what that might be. He was 23 and at a real loose end when one simple thought changed, possibly even saved, his life. One day I was sitting on the front steps and I thought, I want to do something really different with my life. And uh, I thought, well, now music, it's just been a hobby, pick up my guitar about once a month. 
Gee, wouldn't it be nice to be an entertainer, going around entertaining? So I thought, I sat there on the front porch, the sun was shining down. Oh, that's not a bad idea. I wonder if I could do it, you know? So I knew a few songs on my guitar then. And um, I went, OK, let's give it a go. So I bought my cowboy outfit, shirts, necktie, trousers, boots, hats, of course, cowboy jackets, anything that looked cowboyish. I got cracking on some songs, learned a lot of songs off records. And... Um, Right here I go, I'll think of a name for myself. At first he kept it plain, Jock Hume, country and western entertainer. It wasn't long though before he hit on the moniker The Singing Cowboy. I put little ads in our local newspaper. The Singing Cowboy, available for children's parties, weddings, 21sts, schools, galas, retirement homes. Let me wander north to the homestand Way out further on the and even though he had a history with anxiety, Jock discovered he loved an audience. The phone just rang and rang and rang. You know, I was just amazed. I was way to a flying start. People were recommending me to others and I was getting follow-up work, you know, word of mouth. The feeling was just marvellous. That was the whole turnaround of my life. Sometime in the 80s, busking on Auckland streets was legalised. Jock paid his licence fee of 50 cents and was first cowboy out of the chute. When the rain tumbles down he put on a red rodeo shirt, white trousers, tan boots and a black Stetson. Basic cowboy style. And with his permit in his pocket, he headed for Queen Street. One, one chap came up and told me to get a proper job. <laughs> that was a bit of a laugh. I said, look, mate, I said, this is my job, my proper job, and I'm working hard, so if you want to give me something, you want me. And he threw a few coins in there. One thing he soon learned about busking was that even cowboys get attitude. Struck one or two real narcs. <laughs> look at that chap, look at that chap there. Some of them looked on as a form of begging, you know. <laughs> I'd say hello to them, how's the day going? They'd just ignore me and walk on. <laughs> Occasionally someone would help themselves to a $2 note. Hey, hey, you put that back. Ooh. Fortunately, most people are very nice and they said, good to see you here. Over the years, Jock built up a huge following. He raised money for telethons. I got a special mention on television for that. The Singing Cowboy, $56 for, for singing his head off in the Queen Street. And it seemed like everyone had heard of The Singing Cowboy. As well as entertaining at parties and family events, he hitchhiked around the country busking in towns and cities as he passed through. Cambridge, Thai Happy, Otaki Levin, the Capitol Coasts, like and I. Home, though, has always been Auckland. He moved in with his sister Mary in 1974, and they've shared a house ever since. Our flat in Grays Avenue, we were on the first floor, but I was standing on the small balcony, pegging out some washing. And two little boys were um, walking um, along and one of them said to the other, I could hear them clearly, he pointed up and said, that's, that's where the singing cowboy lives. And then he saw me and he said, and that's the cowboy's sister. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's my, that's my role in life, I'm the cowboy's sister. He'd found his niche and uh, it, it just made a huge difference to him. After 47 years of entertaining, Jock has a saddlebag of stories up his tasseled sleeve, like the time he hit pay dirt on K Road. I was playing in the St Kevin's Arcade. This chap came in. He looked like a tourist, you know. He had a very foreign accent. And he, he listened to one or two of my songs. 
he had to sack with him. He started burrowing into the sack and he started drawing out all these bundles of $20 notes. <laughs> Crikey, I couldn't believe my eyes. He put all these $20 notes in my guitar case and in bundles, you know, and uh, I couldn't understand what he was saying. He, as I say, he had a very fine accent. Anyway, he's very nice. He wished me luck, went off. Anyway, as I say, I'm a very honest person. I went down to the police, told him what happened, and said, that's all right, nothing we can do. But the fact I went to the police, I was in the clear, you know. It was $600 I counted. So it soon went. I did advertising on the radio, and that cost a bit. I, um, I bought myself a new guitar, a new cowboy outfit, so cowboy hats, boots, and, you know, I got the rest in the bank. But that was definitely one of the highlights of my life. Jock is a polite cowboy. His manners are impeccable. But he admits even he had to say something when the imposter cowboy, the one I mentioned earlier, tried to drown him out one day when they were both busking in the same place. We'll have a time you never saw. I will be so happy. He started out playing just a bit out in front of me, he was trying to do me out of a job. And that was a bit annoying, I had to ask him to move on. For all of that, Jock never speaks unkindly about his imposter, even though it created quite a bit of brand confusion on the streets of Auckland. Was once a car stopped for me, I'd been busking at a car park in uh, Ponsonby Road, and they said, have you learned any new chords yet, or can you play the guitar properly? I said, look, I've been playing professionally for the last 46 years. And they said, oh, sorry, we've got the wrong person. But embarrassing. I asked Jock if, after 47 years in entertaining, he was a secretly rich singing cowboy with a vault stuffed with wads of $100 bills. Well, not, not really... I've been able to cover myself well, like food and board. And, but I was, I'd say I wouldn't have made a lot. And what I have made, I've spent. <laughs> One of Jock's many talents is that he can learn songs by ear. His repertoire is huge. I hear the train coming, just rolling round the bend. I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. Time keeps dragging on. Jim Reeve songs, Slim Dusty songs, The Rain Tumbles Down in July, uh, When the Moon Across the Bushland Beams, um, Click Go the Shares, The Overlander Trail. And that's before he gets started on his kids' repertoire. Morningtown ride, train whistle blowing, makes a sleepy noise. Down by the station, I've been working on the railroad, Puff the Magic Dragon. But he was in for a surprise one night in 2005 when Mary sprung it on him that they were going to the Variety Club of New Zealand annual awards. I went along and oh, all these people there, I recognised one or two um, celebrities and a guy got up and he said, now we've got a very special award to make tonight to a man who's done a really lot for New Zealand and country music. He travels around a lot even though he didn't have his own horse, the Unsung Hero Award goes to... Jock you, the singing cowboy. Put the cowboy hat on. The <laughs> was shot up in the air. <laughs> I got half said a few words. That, I would say, would be the big climax of my career. With his early struggles in life, Jock was one of those guys who could have slipped through the cracks. Instead, he became a Kiwi icon. Even so, back when he started, his dad wasn't sure about his chosen career. He told Jock, 
see, I'll never make it as an entertainer. You're the, one of the hardest things. I proved him wrong. Dad was always a little diffident about Jock's role. He wasn't comfortable when Jock wanted to busk. Dad wasn't too keen on that. He saw it as begging, which it isn't. It's offering something in return for money. No, he, he never completely came, came round in that way. Both Jock and Mary believe that becoming the singing cowboy saved Jock's life. I tell everyone, music has been his lifeline. It gave him oh, a reason for being, I suppose. And for the family, Jock's success was a cause for celebration. Certainly um, relief and gratitude. All of us were very, very pleased that Jock had found something he enjoyed and that the pressure to get a proper job had been taken off him. The best thing about it was this new confidence, this new um, feeling of not status exactly, but enjoyment of having work that he enjoyed and that he was good at. This is one of our stories. Mum wanted him to develop some other interests and strings to his bow, as they say. She said, Jock, you can't go on being the singing cowboy forever. And he said, what about Burl Ives? Because Burl Ives, when he was a really old man, he was still strumming and singing, and Mum thought that was a very apt answer. Jock pretty much did go on being the singing cowboy forever. As I mentioned at the beginning of the story, he started making noises last year about maybe retiring. The deadline he gave himself was February this year, kind of like now. When I visited him and Mary over the past few months, though, it didn't look like retirement was on the cards at all. In just one fortnight, he'd busked in the Auckland suburbs of Onihanga, Browns Bay, Mount Roskill, Pepakura and Mairangi Bay, and he also fitted in a working trip to Dargaville. He hitched there and back. He thinks maybe his threats of retirement were a little premature. I was so disillusioned the way things were slowing down earlier this year. That's 2016. June, July, August. Oh, the phone wasn't ringing for me. Even though I've sort of said to people I will retire, I probably won't give up completely. So there you go. If Burl Ives is anything to go by, Jock has another 10 years of singing cowboyness ahead of him. I think that the guitar will never be far from his hands. And as long as there's an appreciative audience, I hope he'll take it out and sing. It was somewhere in September and the sun was going down When I came in search of copy to a darling river town and have a drink, we'll fall it. It's a pretty name, I think. It was raining for a wonder. There are photographs to go with the story on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. And don't forget, if you missed episode two, it's available on that website and also on iTunes, Stitcher, and on noted.co.nz. The Lip is a podcast of unforgettable true stories. There will be another one next month. If you want to support us, you can do so by going onto iTunes and leaving a review, liking us on Facebook, or following us on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. See you next month. All the chaps you chance to meet, and he said his name was Sweeney. He had lived in Sussex Street. He was camping in a stable, but he swore that he was right. 
Only for the blanky horses walking over them all night. He had apparently been fighting, for his face was black and blue, and it looked as though the horses had been treading on him too. But an honest genial twinkle in the eye that wasn't hers seemed a hint of something better, brighter drink than rags and dirt.